Hello and welcome to The Stack. This is going to be a truly global episode. We head to South Africa to talk about the new book published by surf brand Mami Vata, Afrosport, the book, plus a family-owned Lebanese notebook brand, and finally, a green culture, an independent journal on fashion and farming. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about Afrosport, the book, a beautiful new publication by South African surf brand Mami Vata. The book is a follow-up on their successful Afrosurf book. The book shines a light on Africa's history and future global influence through the lens of sports, photography, design, and culture. I spoke with Pete Pienaar, creative director of Mami Vata, and Joaquin Noah, ex-NBA player who contributed to the publication. After the surf book, we realized that nothing is an island. You know, everything influences everything. And especially in Africa and the world, I think everything is so connected. So it really felt very important that we start speaking about sport in general and also like the design language. The most important thing for me was like start talking about that connectedness that Africa has. It felt like a lot of people are missing it out. People have a very specific idea about Africa, but no one is really going in there and, and doing research about the connectivity of Africa at the moment, and especially through design and sport and those kind of things. And I think now that Africa is really becoming sort of like very important globally in sport, especially, these kind of conversations is very important, but kind of research is really important in order for Africa to be seen the way it should be seen, I think. Absolutely. And of course, we have here uh, on the line, Joaquin Noah, you wrote the foreword for this amazing book. And Joaquin, I must ask, you have such a close connection family-wise when it comes to African sport, right? So I guess you feel quite passionate, even though you even say this in the book, you perhaps you know, never lived in Africa, but it's, it's very much present in you, right? There's something about being African that just makes you really proud. I was in Senegal when Morocco qualified for the semifinals and Senegal was cheering as if Morocco was part of Senegal. And the reason why is because the connection that you're talking about with Africa is so real. You wouldn't see an Argentinian team cheering for Brazil, but in Africa, you feel that people are proud to be from Africa. That's the connection we're talking about. And I think it was being in Senegal to see that said everything I needed to know about how proud Africans are to be African. I mean, that's a, that's a great quote. You're very right. And I mean, this will be very rare to see in other places. And also, Peter, I have to say, I mean, what an incredible, we had 25 different writers, 30 photographers for the book. I mean, what an interesting compilation of great artists, right? I mean, how did you manage to get in touch with all those people? I mean, were people that knew perhaps the work of your brand as well, uh, Mami Vata as well, which I have to mention here? I think through the first book, we established like a network of writers throughout the continent. And I think one thing that actually helped us establish that was COVID because we created the first book in COVID and we couldn't travel. And therefore we had to find people in each country in Africa to write and photograph stuff for us. We were forced to like work with people we didn't work with before and finding a network of people. And I think that was incredible because now we're super connected over the continent. The more you speak to people, people introduce you to people. Especially West Africa, you know, it feels like 
people there are very connected over countries. It's not only like the Ghanaian writers know the Ghanaian ones, but they also know the Nigerian ones. One thing as well, Peter, of course, there are all sorts of sports in the books, including surfing. Uh, but there are some sports that I didn't know much about it. I mean, there was an interesting story about Senegalese wrestling. I mean, it's fascinating looking at the pictures as well. So I love it how you cover everything in a way, right? So that's super interesting. I think it feels like we covered everything, but we really covered this very, very small part, you know, like Africa's so big and there's so many things. But we try to select things that we think like telling a story of like, you know, how Africa is connected to the world at the moment. The Senegalese wrestling, the Lam wrestling. What's interesting about that is that it's like centered around the culture. And because of that, it seems it's kind of like dying down a bit. And we wanted to see what happens when things are very cultural focused and when it's opened up and it grows. So it's, it's a bit like, why do you see certain sports like growing really fast? And why do you see certain sports becoming smaller? And we wanted to see what's the reasoning behind it and what's happening there. And with that, we saw that it's because one of the main reasons was that it was so cultural focused. Like the world is very sensitive around cultural appropriation and those kind of things. So I think a lot of people might feel like they can't join the sport you know like you won't see like someone from sweden going like do a wrestling like that because they might feel like it's too cultural and therefore they, they cannot participate and that's how those, those are the kind of issues we wanted to explore i want to bring you here joaquin as well because again you wrote in your forward you're very involved with the basketball africa league right that's super interesting and of course that's you know i know that's the sport where you're good at you're you're a player also uh what can you tell us about that well, I think it's a project that I'm really proud of. You know, I think that the NBA wanted to build a league in Africa because it believes that this is a place where it's the fastest growing youth populations in the world. They see the potential, the financial potential of it. Basketball is a sport where there's been a lot of African legends, uh, especially in the NBA. You think of the Kembe Mutombo, you think of Akeem Olajuwon, you know, these are pillars, not just African pillars. These are pillars of the game. But the reality is the infrastructure is not close to, to being where it needs to be. As soon as I found out who the leadership was going to be in Amadou Gallo Fall, as soon as I saw who was behind this project, this was something that I knew right away this is something that I wanted to be a part of. When you think of Africa, especially when it comes to sports, you know, parents were always very reluctant to let their kids look at sports on a, like, especially professionally, they're more interested in their kids' education and being able to give back to the household right away. So there's always been a little bit of pushback when it comes to basketball, because it's not like football where it's part of the culture yet. It's still early stages, but it's growing fast. And, um, you know, being part of the NBA Africa League and BAL is something that I'm really, really proud of. And I think that it's growing at a good pace. We just got to keep it up. In the four years of BAL, I can just see the, the level of the talent just, just rising. And I see governments, you know, really pushing for basketball to grow. Talking about another sport, and I have to say, I, I love the sport. I'm, I'm terrible at it, but I love it, which is surfing. Uh, yeah, I'm very bad. <laughs> but Peter, I have to say that the profits of this book as well, there, there's some connections with some charities that do Surf therapy, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. How is the surfing scene in Africa going? I mean, I know you know a lot about this. 
all the profits go to two surf organizations. So it's um, Wasteful Chains and um, Surface Not Street Children. And the reason we do that is because the sea is a natural resource. You know, you don't need to build anything. It's something that, you know, that, that can bring a lot to, you know, people living next to a wave. And these organizations are really going out and, you know, they're helping like thousands of kids per day in Africa, teaching them to surf. And they have a, a very special program documenting every day with an iPad. Like if I come to surf, how do I feel today? I'm happy today or I'm sad. I feel less, I feel this. And we can see really progress in, in a few months' time of like how kids are changing. So it's really documented. It's really well-structured. And for us, it's really important, you know, like it can open so many things. Um, surf, you know, economically in Africa, you know, if a town has a big wave, tourists can go there, you know. There's so many things that can develop from that. And these organizations help those things setting it up in a proper way. That is not just like someone coming from outside and building a hotel and then just taking all that money for them. For us, it's very important that we connect those kind of things in a very holistic way. I think it's it's super important. And also that it's, you know, like I think a lot of the difference between surfing in Africa and, and, and sort of the West is that it's maybe not as competitive in a way, but it's more, you know, people want to do it because they feel good about it. That's also a great thing, you know, so... I think the competition thing is still difficult. People struggle to fly around the world, you know, get the money around the world to go and compete in competitions all the time and stuff like that. But I think it's science, we're steering it more into sort of a holistic way of like therapy. And uh, Joaquin, maybe finally here, just mentioning, you write about, you know, the growing influence of Africa. The world is becoming more African. So don't you think as well that a title like Afrosport, it's necessary, you know, so people know more about who are, you know, the African kind of sports stars, you know, not necessarily just footballers, but, you know, a great surfer, a great wrestler, a great, I don't know, go for anything really, right? I think it's beautiful. Anytime you can bring awareness on the continent, I think that it's something that we can all be proud of, not just for the African athletes, but also for people all around the world who have interests in Africa, you know, the, the children of the diaspora as well. Being able to, you know, learn about not just the heroes, but the different sports and just, you know, this is a vibrant, active continent. So just to be able to raise that awareness and that consciousness about African sports, I think, is what it's all about. Thank you very much, Pete and Joaquin there as well. Remember, profits from the sales of Afrosport will go to African youth surf therapy organizations, Waves for Change and Surfers Not Street Children. For more information, go to mamivatasurf.co.uk. And now to a fascinating story of a family stationary business for more than 200 years in Lebanon. Mo Bekdash from Beirut is the founder of Dingbat's Notebooks. He's the fifth generation of that incredible family business there in Lebanon. The name Bekdash has been synonymous with paper for over two centuries. Mo's father, Jamal Bekdash, runs the parent company, Societe Kamel Bekdash, which was established in the 1800s and is recognized as the oldest registered company in the country. Mo found Dingbats in 2016 at the age of 23. I spoke with Mo about the brand and the importance of the notebook, plus his plans for 2024. The heritage of the company is really interesting. The person who originally started the company is actually my great-great-grandfather. So it goes back to the year 1800. And today I represent the fifth generation of this company. 
The company back then was mainly specialized in trading paper all over the Middle East region and stands until today as the oldest running company in the entire country. So there was some pressure, if you want, on my shoulders, <laughs> and I lived up to the expectations, more or less. Continued the legacy and doing some sort of twist to that old industry, which was basically notebooks. And we found a gap in today's fast-paced environment where people wanted to go down to something that is, let's say, legacy-based and go away from some screen time and thinking sustainable as well. What we did is we combined all of those efforts and made a journal, uh, which was suitable for anyone with uh, increasing conscious mind these days. And it's fantastic, right, Mo, that after 200 years, I think our passion for paper, you know, remains very strong. And, and I think, you know, I've been reading a couple of your interviews as well, that even with young people, it's not just kind of older people that buy notebooks, right? I mean, what do you think? Do you see kind of uh, this customer, this slightly younger customer as well? Actually, that is a very interesting point because mainly what we see in our customers, they're aged 21 and above. So between 21 and 35 is the main age bracket. Wow. So it's not what people would think where people would assume the older generation is the one that is using the notebook because they're used to it. In fact, even the Gen Z kind of generation who were never brought up with the whole concept of journaling is now being introduced to that and using it as a mindfulness solution where they can write about gratitude subject for anxiety reasons, for stress relief, or for general self-reflection. And this is, it is proving to be a tool that is supporting their needs in that way. And there's a big science behind it as well. For us, Dingbats, we're acting right now as advocates towards this whole mission. And we're happening to do that through raising awareness on endangered habitats and species around the world as well, which is what we as the co-founders, if you want, of the brand, really like as well at a personal level. So we're trying as much as possible to raise awareness on the journaling aspect, the eco-friendly aspect, and most of all, getting something that is of quality because people nowadays are also resorting to journaling, but they want to do it in a way where they are actually getting the quality that they expect to have. And this is what we are presenting. What are your kind of biggest markets? I mean, do you, because I know you still have a very strong connection in Beirut. In fact, uh, you are there more or less, you know, in, in Beirut. So what are the biggest markets? I know you have a big presence in the UK as well, for example. Yes, the biggest markets, surprisingly, are sort of Northern, Northern Europe. So let's say UK, Scandinavia, and Belgium, Netherlands, Germany. In addition to that, we are very strong in North America, so US and Canada. And we have a very nice presence in Australia, New Zealand, even in some Far East countries. Funny enough, although our main offices are located in Beirut, our presence in the Middle East is close to none. I think this is something that is an opportunity for us as well, where we kind of created a proof of concept in the Western world. And now from all the lessons that we have learned, we want to then apply everything that we basically created and expand into the Middle East region. 
let's talk about some of the the models of the notebooks. I had a look, and and I have to say, my favorite, which I already have a copy. You know, it's the soft cover in orange with the tiger on the cover. I think they're so playful, beautiful colors, and I think especially this one, the soft covers. I think they're kind of a new collection, right? Uh, so I see you guys always keep changing. There's always new additions to the to the your catalog. Exactly. I mean, even when we first started, we just had like three or four different notebooks. And what we did is we tried to collect as much feedback as possible to see what people are interested in nowadays in terms of sizes, colors, even formats on the inside. And what we used to do is we used to collect all of this and just launch collections that include some new features, some new sizes, some new range of colors, or even different products like pens and even backpacks nowadays. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to complete the perfect everyday carry for any kind of customer or fan that wants to visit our store, which would meet our quality and eco standards as well. The flexible cover, for example, has been a request for quite some time where people wanted something flexible and on the go and so this is something that we've done and something that was celebrated quite well when we launched it. So we're always improving, always wanting to provide what's relevant and what people want. And we have a specific department only for working on customer feedback, whether it is positive or negative. We're always looking to improve and making sure every customer that comes to our store is 100% satisfied. You must have quite a close connection kind of to animals and nature because not only, uh, I believe, 2% of, you know, everything you do is donated to a charity. As I said, you know, I, I love this uh, tiger notebook, but there are other ones with, you know, elephants and other animals. So it must be something that is very close to your heart, right? Yeah, the, the, the thing is that for all of our family, for some reason, mm -hmm. we are big lovers for wildlife in general and national parks and and just all of the habitat that wildlife lives in. And we happen to combine both worlds into the simple product because people want a notebook that is also that also has a personality behind it. So you can feel a certain connection to a certain animal. It can be a connection where you feel you share certain values. For example, people like the elephant because it has a very nice memory. It's very kind. People can then purchase that notebook and feel close to it. It's something that is personal and emotional. And people can choose a notebook they want with a certain region or animal because they feel that they are helping that cause as well. So it makes them closer to the fact that we are donating 2% of our revenue in the UK towards those efforts. And this is what made us different from this industrialized market or mass market nowadays, where everything you're buying is just simple and blank. Here we touched the emotional aspect of consumers, and this is what they wanted at the end of the day. That's fantastic. And I'm going to be nosy. Which notebook do you uh, use actually from your collection? Are you a hardcover so, or a softcover <laughs> kind of guy? <laughs> so uh, very good question. For, for me personally, I have to use the elephant notebook, which is in the dotted format and is the hardcover version. Because the funny story about the elephant notebook is that I personally believe the Elephant Notebook is what made us who we are today as a company. Oh. From the moment we launched the Elephant Notebook, things turned around completely for the company and we started growing at a very, very fast pace. And 
just because of the color and the animal as well, which is arguably one of the most popular animals in the world. People really love the idea. And this is where we went on a different trajectory. So for me, I have to be the elephant <laughs> user and, and I, will, I will forever be unless some other notebook makes a new trajectory for the company as well. Thank you very much, Mo. For more information, go to dinkbats-notebooks.com. And finally on the show, Colacci, a collective and research agency actioning sustainable development in the fashion industry, just published their first independent journal on fashion and farming, agriculture. I had a pleasure to speak with the co-founders of Colacci and agriculture, Tina Wachi and Piave Wachi. Colacci essentially is a research collective and agency and it started with myself and Piave. We started it a couple of years ago when we realized that We wanted to start a fashion brand, but we weren't quite too sure how. And then on that journey of trying to figure out how to start a fashion brand, we were like, well, we don't really want to create waste. And we started doing events and different talks and things like that. And from that, we decided that actually there's so many problems in the fashion industry that have not been tackled. And we need to look at things that are a lot more thought led and a lot more tackling injustices and things that are not discussed. And from there, we started Kalechi. That's fantastic. And I think in a way, that's what green culture is all about. I mean, issue one is out now. It's going to be, I believe, an annual journal. Pierre, tell us a bit more about what themes you want to focus on the magazine in particular. So with the journal, it actually started with us thinking about something that we started during COVID called the clean fashion model. And that was us realizing that If everybody could understand the fashion industry in these four sections, then maybe whether you're a consumer or in the actual industry, maybe you can better understand where your clothing goes and the journey of your clothes. So the clean fashion model looks at fashion in four parts, sourcing, making and manufacturing, media and influencing, and then afterlife, which is post-consumer. And so the journal is the beginning of that system. So it starts with sourcing. And just thinking, okay, our clothes come from fiber, it comes from somewhere. And we started visiting farms. So we had a very interesting conversation with the founder of one of the fiber sheds in the UK, Emma Haig, was the founder. And she was telling us about all of these farmers that she's speaking to that have amazing fibers here in the UK. But then they were struggling to connect with designers. Whereas we're here in London having these amazing conversations with designers that are trying to do something different, do something better. And we thought there's definitely a disconnect here. So the journal starts with farming and sourcing and the hope is to explore the clean fashion model in different ways as we grow our different issues and additions. And Tina, one thing I liked about Green Culture as well is how positive it is because we do have a lot of reasons to be negative when it comes to you know climate change and and waste, as you said, but it's so nice to put those, some people on the spotlight. I, I kind of almost forgotten, even when you're talking about the fashion press in a way, those farmers who makes the fabric of the clothes that we wear, right? Yeah, I love that. And I like that you touch upon that because I think climate anxiety is such a big thing, especially with young people. And I think um, when we talk about climate change, you can feel very hopeless. And the idea of a green culture is to spotlight local initiatives that are happening. And a lot of the people involved are really regular, everyday people. When we go to the farms and we meet people like Jen Hunter, Andy Ware, who own Fernhill Farm, they're very regular people. Their day relies on their livestock. Everything is quite simple in terms of what they do. But then 
when we think about the fashion industry and we think about shows and producing collections, it's so big and it's amplified, but really it all starts from this thing and there's all kind of regular people involved. And I think what the journal's really trying to spotlight is all of these people who have found ways to make, either it's their passion, either it's their calling, either it's just what they do, but they found the way to make it circular or sustainable or are working towards that or trying to like shift a part of the system. I think... What we want to do with the journal is invite people to be able to understand how they can support these people and know that these people exist and also just feel empowered in whatever they do, if they work in fashion, if they don't, but really understand that every part of what we do, we need to see how we can put it into a bit more of a circular model and what kind of things that we can implement within it. And Tina, you mentioned that the whole idea at the beginning perhaps was to start a fashion brand, but well, you started a magazine. How is it to start a magazine? Are you excited? Did you always like print? What's your connection with magazines? I guess quite a lot of connection. I think, like I said, we wanted to start a fashion brand with Kelechi, but kind of realized that there's a lot of maybe obstacles to starting it, especially when you're not already connected and thinking about why would we want to add more waste. And when we developed Kelechi into this research agency and collective, also we see ourselves as almost this collaborative think tank. We like to use different mediums to express the different things that we want to put out there in terms of learning, education and, and teaching. And I think that first method that we used was using events and bringing people together and thinking about what it's like to make people interact. So we'll do things like workshops. And I think just naturally from the amount of information and the amount of people that we were meeting and all of this research that we had, and we were like, how can we give this to people in a way that people can take it away in a way that people can just have it. So I think that's where print just became a natural thing. It wasn't so much let's start a journal straight away. It was more so like we have all of this knowledge. What's a great way for people to be able to access it? And also just people who aren't in the circle sometimes going to a physical event can be a bit intimidating if you don't know the topic or you might not necessarily want to go out. But I think something like a journal is a bit more accessible to everyone. Anyone can read it. Everyone can pick it up. I think also print media is super important to me because I think with a background working in PR and understanding the print and media landscape, I think in fashion as well, sometimes it is a bit neglected when it comes to things that are a bit more educational or a bit more thought-led. I think we're very quick to have great images and editorials, but it can feel quite disposable with the way content is moving so quickly. And I think we wanted to put something in this space that can be a little bit slower, that is in this intersection of academic reading and also a magazine, so that it can feel accessible, but at the same time, it's something that's a bit more and something that takes time. Like, you do need to sit down and read it. You do have to absorb the information, but we wanted it to make it quite personal and something a little bit more playful in a sense of that it's it's quite personal, each chapter, each of us on the team introducing it and, and really relating it back to us. So it feels like you're reading a bit of a diary at the same time whilst reading informative content which I really liked about the magazine. It's a beautiful thing. It's a hefty uh, title. Look at the noise, sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I love the logo as well. I think you would work well for a fashion brand in the future. I don't know as well. <laughs> who knows, who knows, Coming right? soon. Coming soon. <laughs> so where can people actually buy the magazine or if they're interested to find out a bit more about Kolachi? Um, so the best place to go is our website, journal.kolachi.com. Dot com. So that's where the journal is. We also do have a general website, collecti.com, but if you want the journal and to find out more about the journal, that's the best place. And also we are stocked now at Whitechapel Gallery and we are speaking to a few other stockists as well at the moment. So you'll probably start seeing it popping up in a few independent bookshops in London and some museums as well. Or if they come to our events, for example, we run a knitting club every month. Whenever you come to a Collecti event, we'll always have copies with us there as well. Thank you very much, Tina and Pierre V. And you can go to collage.com to find out a bit more.
And that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. We're back next Saturday at the same time. And before we go, a little song for you. Yannick Noah, Saga Africa. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Attention les secousses, Saga Africa. Attention les secousses, Saga Africa. Attention les secousses.